So hey folks, Jeff Salzman here. This morning with my dear brother in integral, Dr. Keith Witt, the doctor of love himself. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Jeff. How's everything in Santa Barbara? Everything is beautiful as usual in Santa Barbara. How is it in Boulder? It, we're having an extra beautiful day here in Boulder. <laughs> <laughs> the God realms, you know. The God realms. It's so fun talking to you and, and to continue this conversation that we're having in this general category of integrating the upper left and upper right, or you know, the typical psychotherapeutic interior models uh, with neurobiology in the actual brain. Yes. And that's one of the things that you do so well, Keith, as an integralist. I mean, it's, you have deep experience with psychotherapy, having done, what, you say 40,000 sessions over your career? 50,000. <laughs> 50,000. Jesus, Lord, man. So that's the mastery level. And you wrote two books, The Attuned Family and The Gift of Shame, uh, that both integrate this neurobiology and, and psychotherapy. Yes. And, you know, we've been talking about this. We have a couple other conversations actually posted uh, on this site. And you and I were talking the other day about how we, we all know, and we talk about this in, in our evolutionary teachings and so forth, that evolution has wired human beings to recognize and react to danger, basically. It's been very evolutionarily potent to become hypervigilant and, and neurotic. And that while that's true, the part that we're missing often, and I was missing, and this is what was so thrilling about my conversation with you the other day, is that it also turns out that neurobiologically, we're wired also to be basically little goodness, truth, and beauty machines. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Love machines. Love machines. <laughs> so why don't we just start there and and share a little bit about what you're thinking about that, because that was new to me and, and very, you know, uplifting. Yeah, to me too. It, you, we're seeing the birth of a religion that has evolution at its core. Michael Murphy calls it evolutionary panentheism, and it really doesn't matter what people call it. As soon as any tradition or system incorporates evolution into its teaching, accepts it, it's creating a conveyor belt concept that gives the mythic membership and the sacred writings room to develop. It's essentially mm-hmm. like adding the capacity to amend the Constitution to the sacred text, um, right. evolution. Neuroscience has been very uh, clear about brains being wired to protect us from threat. And there's right. a lot of evidence about... Uh, That's that whole amygdala thing, right? The whole amygdala thing. There's, there's a right amygdala <laughs> and a left amygdala. The right hemisphere involves attraction emotions. The left hemisphere involves attraction emotions. The right hemisphere involves avoidance emotions. But even given that, two-thirds of the amygdala involves threat emotions. And, and, And threat, we can learn almost instantaneously in a in a threatening situation. The most obvious example of that is post-traumatic stress syndrome where an event that lasts 30 milliseconds can cause a life-changing reorganization of the nervous system. And the holy grail, of course, of psychotherapy and change work and spiritual teaching has always been, is there something positive that can have an equally instantaneous effect only on the the opposite direction towards greater integration, towards um, greater sense of unity? Um, there's some evidence that that can happen, but in general, it requires an ongoing process of uh, of interpersonal and intrapersonal integration 
to prepare yourself for those events that feel like before and after life-changing events. Let me just say in my own experience that I can think of a couple. Uh, I don't know if they were 30 milliseconds, but they were a day or two realization, one of which was accepting Jesus as my personal Savior. Hmm. You know, that at you know, 12 or whatever it was, that reorganized me. Well, what was that moment it was, like? It was a great, joyous uplifting of love, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, being felt like I was seen and loved by the Creator God mm-hmm. and in a personal, loving way, as a mother, father, you know, just in the lap, safe, and, you know, I think moved up. And then actually, paradoxically, another move up was after reading The Fountainhead and losing my religion. (laughs) You know? And then another one was reading Scott Peck and after being an atheist for 10... We talked about this last time. After reading The Road Less Traveled in one day, go from atheist 10 years to, again, seen and loved by God, only this was a different category or different, you know, way. So those have been very, yeah, different level. And I would see these as, you know, pretty quick reorganizations of the psyche for me. Yes. So I I would just say, you know, as this evidence comes in, my hypothesis is yes, absolutely. We can have short experiences that move us quickly forward. Well, and remember at 12, you had been inculcated in Christian teachings for seven years, at least eight years. Yes. By the time you read The Fountainhead, you had been formal operational and had um, been practicing rationality and critical analysis in the dialectic probably for five or six years. Correct. By the time that you read The Road Less Traveled, you had been a a spiritual seeker, anchored in your atheism, but still hungry for a deeper sense of of meaning for probably a dozen years. Um, Doing deep psychotherapeutic work meditation. Yep, I was ready. And so this fits with George Leonard's mastery curve of, you know, long, long plateau, and then something happens, wham, dramatic up-leveling. This is one reason I think people have had this experience when they've had guided uh, psychedelic trips. You know, there's been a lot of work that they've done, but then there's an experience that kind of cracks them open. And to a certain extent, you hear this from people that have had traumas. Um, A whole bunch of people will describe life-changing events where they were different before and uh, they, they were more selfish, more egocentric, and more world-centric, more caring before. And you say, well, what was the event? The event will be I had cancer. My, my mm-hmm. son died. Um, right. You know, that kind of stuff. And in dealing right. with that trauma, something broke loose. Something yes. cracked open. In yes. And well, in some ways you could say that even when we crack, the just sort of updraft of emergence has some room yes you know to get in there and lift us and it sometimes it takes this unwanted material you know the loss of a loved one you know the bad diagnosis right to crack us this is why i think god really screwed this whole thing up i think the (laughs) laws the laws of nature here are really terrible it's a very bad system you should write a letter (laughs) write him a letter (laughs) Write a letter to your God. <laughs> I want to be in paradise right now. <laughs> it's not fair. You know, a anyway. friend asked me yesterday, what would you do if you were utterly free, completely free of purpose and desire? 
what would that look like? And the only thing that I could come up with was an image from a science fiction book that I gave Ken once that I'm sure he didn't read, was where a guy had his Atman projected into the Van Allen belt around a planet. And he stayed there for 70 years. And then they, they sucked him back down to do something. And the first thing he said when he opened his eyes is, why the fuck did you do that? Oh, How my was, God. Why yeah. did you bring me out of that? <laughs> oh, really? I see. So that was good. You know, the yeah, it was like, was... I was in the Van Allen belt. My Atman was one with Van Allen belt, and you pulled yeah. me back down into a human body. How dare you do that to me? Well, well fair enough. And I actually think that points to some, uh, again, hypothet- hypothetical truth for me. Uh-huh. But that is that we are actually headed to a place where we have that emptiness again, uh, but it's completely full. Yes. You know, with, with the whole of this manifestation joyride. Mm. And then, you know, it's like that T.S. Eliot line. Uh, we end where we began, but we know it for the first time. Mm. You know, so, so yeah, something yeah. like that. That fits neurobiologically, too. You know, when, it does? Absolutely, it, it does. So first of all, you're right. I love the upper right. I, actually, I love every, all of them. I'm like Ken. You know, <laughs> Ken starts talking, and he goes, well, I love states. I love types. I love them all. Yeah. But, but yes, yeah. integrating the upper right and the lower right with the upper left and the lower, lower left, particularly in areas that I see a lot. You know, usually people will be biased. They'll be biased towards neurobiology or they'll be biased towards the metaphoric systems of the 20th century, you know, right. the psychoanalytic the object relation systems. And for me, or the social systems, um, um, or the relational systems like attachment research. And to me, um, anybody who has their own approach over-interprets it. If you have yeah. an approach that you like, you're going to over-interpret it because that's how you practice it and learn it. But the yeah. way you protect yourself from over-interpreting your, your approach is you triangulate it with all four quadrants and with levels and lines and types and states. And when you do that, you begin to find out the, the wheat from the chaff. And yeah. uh, so there's, there's substantive truths that emerge from all the systems that do bear that scrutiny of cross-validation across an aqual yes. matrix. And yes. one of them is evolution. So evolution, as we said, is, kind of the basis of a new religion. Everybody's quoting it and so on. And, and it adds a conveyor belt concept to every tradition that brings it in. But when people talk about evolution and the brain being wired for threat, they're always talking about, well, we're wired for threat, we're wired to be paranoid, we're wired to avoid... It's, it, we have to focus more on positive experiences to have them register into our personality. Then we need to focus on negative experiences. It requires conscious effort. Right. Rick Hansen in, in, in Buddha's Brain is a big uh, uh, advocate of this. And, and so are you, right? Oh, I'm completely an advocate of this. Um, yeah, yeah. I, and, this uh, is what was so impressive to me about uh, even some of the neurobiology you're talking about, which shows, uh, you know, scientifically, observationally, that we need to do positive things intentionally for, I don't know, you know, share some of that, just that, okay. Generally, you know, getting these want, new grooves in our psyches yes. takes you, effort. It, so the left hemisphere is the approach hemisphere. That develops with spiritual practice and, and so on. But the way that it develops, interestingly, is as you create more and more, um, you learn routines quickly in the, from the left hemisphere. 
Um, but the right hemisphere is, a, is associated with habitual responses. You can, it takes a long time to learn a new habitual response. It takes a very short time to learn a new routine, but you have to consciously practice the new routine thousands of times sometimes before it becomes an habitual response. That's because right. when you think about a new routine and, and enact it, it activates a neural network that immediately begins to become myelinated. If you can maintain that routine for a period of time, William James thought it was 21 days. Some neuroscientists mm-hmm. say that after 30 days of doing something new, stem cells divide in your brain, creating, uh, and the daughter cells create integrative neurons that hardwire new networks that involve um, mm-hmm. whatever the practices that you're doing. Um, great book on that, Daniel Coyle, um, uh, The Talent Code. Um, hmm. And so you learn these new routines, practice them. Meditation is a good example. And eventually what it does is it makes it into your right hemisphere as a new habit. And that's why, to a certain extent, um, when you meditate, what you're doing is changing the structure of your brain. And you can right. find structural changes in a person's brain after only eight weeks of meditation. How interesting that all spiritual traditions have created practice. Exactly. And the idea of practice, because and it's just methodically, you know, step by step, uh, keeps peeling the onion, or, yeah. you know, creating new grooves. Creating new grooves of introspection, where people intuitively come up, at least in, in previous generations, have come up metaphorically with constructs that now we're actually dealing with directly. Right. You know, the idea of, of atoms was come up was uh, Heraclitus came up with that 600 BC, but he did had no concept of of atomic structure, and so he just thought that everything was water if you just reduced it. He knew that there was some substance where everything yeah. was the same. He can intuit it, but he had to go into metaphor. Um, yeah. Other another thing, for instance, is that when we're in utero, we're laying down implicit memories. Implicit memories are memories where we have. We, when, with an association, we can have an experience and a story and an impulse and a feeling and so on, but it doesn't feel like a memory. Um, yeah. This is, that's the implicit memory system. The implicit memory system is, is engaged in the third trimester, and the explicit memory system where we actually feel like something we're remembering is a memory, that doesn't get really engaged until about 18 months when the hippocampus, uh, an organ right behind the frontal cortex, is mature enough so that we can have more permanent uh, uh, memories. It's called explicit memory. Um, is that where just basic self-consciousness comes online? That's like, where awareness of self as a psychological being, theory of mind, comes online between 18 yeah. and 24 months. Yeah. And it and rises with language. And my belief always has been that, that the human capacity for language, metaphor, grammar, I, you, me, we, and so on, when that happened with a couple of mutations that started at 200,000 years ago and then some other mutations that gave our lips and mouths the ability to articulate. And, and, well, yeah, uh, that's or, one of the things you were talking about that was so interesting is that the structures in the upper right, that is brain structures neurobiologically, have been shown to come on evolutionarily before their use. Exactly. Structure it's comes, like the, the hardware of a computer is built before we have all the software that we can possibly run through it. Yes. The structure comes first, and then the capacity grows into the structure. And at least neurologically, brains never give up territory that they establish. They just add on new territory. 
that sort of violates one of the rules of evolution about adaptation, right? I mean, why would it grow if it's not being used? Or maybe it is being used as it's being grown. Yes, it's included and transcended, which brings us all the way to humans, where humans take biological drives and genetic imperatives and turn them into art. And when that capacity happened, and then the capacity to transform that art into an enduring record via drawing, cave paintings, and eventually language, all of a sudden there was an evolutionary boost, and it's, essentially humans became cyborgs at, at that point. They found a new earlier cave paintings, mm-hmm. and now it's more like 40,000 years yeah. old. You know, and and that's, so that's when that sort of thing came on, like 40,000, 30,000 years ago. Yeah, in 170, uh, as early as 180,000 years ago, we were finding burial rites. Okay, right. 200,000 years ago is when the FOXP2 mutation happened that gave us language. I believe that self-awareness arises out of a capacity for language in that when we have language at around two years old, we now have what uh, Noam Chomsky called discrete infinity. We have a capacity for one aspect of ourself to relate to numerous other aspects in an infinity of forms, and out of that comes the self-identity. That's kind of the birth of ego. And to transcend Mm -hmm. ego, then, we have to go through seven or eight developmental levels of developing ego before we can get back to that one place that we had right before we were born, where we were one with the universe, laying down implicit memories in our brain of entire unity with everything. Those circuits are still there. They get rediscovered through contemplative practice. That's why everybody feels like they're coming back home when they finally discover shunyata, pure emptiness, Hmm. or non-dual reality. Well, we're coming back home because those are implicit memories that were encoded into our brains the third trimester. And they're still there. They're, yeah. They've been transcended, and they're always included, but we don't always remember or, or notice them, and it's, it does feel like going back home. Yeah, and the implicit memories, remember, have all the characteristics of memory, except there's not a sense of something being remembered. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's no, it's just that, memory. it's almost that, just that oceanic ah, you know. Yeah. I always love the Tibetan first syllable was ah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, that was the going, beginning of everything. So going back to evolution, so evolution, all the people who talk about evolution talk about threats because brains are wired for threats and people are wired to be paranoid and everything. And they all, when they all talk, they go, well, we're wired because there's a cave bear in, uh, or, a, or a lion or something or a snake and we were wired to you know, look out for the, lion, the snake and so on. What everybody forgets is that the last couple of million years, the biggest threat to humans were other humans. We're social beings. The brain is a social organ. And that the ultimate skill in being safe with other humans is to turn them into friends. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm a martial artist, and the ultimate martial art is to turn your enemy into a friend. That's the ultimate martial art. Really? Yes. Why didn't anybody ever tell me this? I thought we were supposed to just, like, hurt them and kill them. Yeah, I used to work as a road laborer for City of Commerce, which is kind of the armpit of Los Angeles, a couple of summers. And one job that we had once is we, me and these other couple of guys, a couple of guys and I, we were in the back of a truck shoveling sand onto a road that we just put oil on, which is a mindless, you know, dirty job. Right. So he just spaced out and this, this low rider, you know, like gang guy in this, this really sharp car was cruising by. I didn't see him. 
and I unloaded a big shovel full of sand onto his windshield. Okay. Right. Okay, so he right. went in front of our truck, screeched to a halt, and this pissed off Hispanic guy got out, started walking down to the truck. And the guy in, in the back of the truck with me said, Wit, you're going to get your ass kicked. And I looked at him and I said, <laughs> I said watch this. Not, it's going to be fine. Because I knew that I had about 10 seconds. So I got right. out of the truck, and I, as I approached the guy, like I projected love out, and I said, I am so sorry. I'll clean up your windshield. I walked around him, started wiping the sand off. If there's any damage, this is my name. Send me a bill. By the time that, that he was within striking distance of me, there was no, he was pissed, but there was no way that he was going to do violence to me because I had right. created an alliance with him. I had a yes. little bit turned him into my friend. Yes, okay. you did. Okay, yes. so that capacity to relate is well, in... Well, just, just that, Keith, um, I a little bit turned him into my friend. That's nice. Yeah. That's a practice right there. You don't have to, you know, do these big, it's not magic. No, it's not. I just a little bit turned him into my friend. Yeah, I was no longer an object. I was a human being that was that felt yes. really bad that he'd hurt him. Yeah. If I'm looking at or hurt me, if somebody hurts me and that person is a human that feels genuinely, authentically bad that they hurt me and wants to help me feel better, it's almost impossible for me to do violence to them. Yeah, okay. that's hardwired no, into me. Yeah, that's genetically wired in that capacity, and it, you can you know this because if you take any developmental line and you go up up it. As you hit the upper levels, you have enhanced capacity for love. Yeah. Spiritual line, moral line, interpersonal yep. line, psychosexual line. And the love always involves more transparency, more authenticity. Yeah. And a bigger span of people included. Exactly. <clears throat> a wider yeah. embrace. And so genetically what we're doing is we're moving to a place where we relate to everyone as our blood relative. Yeah. Well, this is the part of the religion that I was kind of missing, Keith, so thank you. I mean, it's this idea that our brain and the wiring is creating itself in ways that have us recognize. And you were talking about how in milliseconds we can recognize something that's ugly or beautiful. Yes. I mean, that's a, that's a beauty machine right there, you that's know, right. or something's good or bad yes. or something that's safe or unsafe. That's basically true or untrue. I mean, that's, we are right. little machines that are, in the best sense of the word, you know, looking to love and grow and connect right we want yeah. that and the more that we develop the more that we develop a self-observing self you know we have response flexibility we can pause before action the, the the wider our awareness of ourselves then a couple of things happen one people don't develop that kind generally don't develop that extra level of self-observation without also developing their principles um some people Keith, Keith, you say that again. They, they don't? People generally, if you're developing a wider embrace, I'm, I yeah. can observe myself talking to you, observe us as having a conversation that might be relevant to other people that right. are listening, that might, that might activate them thinking in terms of their life and their genetic legacy and how they might love better. The, the wider my level of self-observation, generally that involves um, me having a deeper understanding of what my principles are. Okay. Spiritual practice generally involves advancing yourself on your moral line of development, though not always. I mean, and so can, your principles are, for instance, to love? Principle for, one principle I have is that love heals. 
Another okay. principle that I have is practice uh, the values that I teach. Another yes. principle that I have is don't advise something for somebody else that I wouldn't advise to my son or my wife or to right. my friend. Okay. Yeah. Um, another so principle. Go on. You're st- so you're saying that to the degree that you have these principles online, and they're just kind of built in and and also probably stabilize as a result of practice, uh, and that to the degree that you can do that, you have a wider embrace or you have more self-observational capacity? Well, I think what happens when you grow through different worldviews, every yeah. worldview has its own foundation uh, principles, its own foundation values that are solid values that make it to the next worldview. Right. Then now it's kind of like the, the dialectic of progress. There are, there, are value, there are red values and purple values and, and blue values that we discard. You know, we discard purple in that when we move to red. What you do when you move to red is you go, people outside of my tribe are actually human beings. Okay. Yes. So purple, a purple fallacy is if you're not in my tribe, you're not a human being. Right. You know, as far as the red, the red goes, everybody's human beings. I just want to control everybody, or I have a power god that I'm, I have fealty to. But that everybody's human beings then is, makes it to blue. But the idea of blue, if science disagrees with my sacred beliefs, then I toss science. That gets lost when you go to orange. But the idea right. of loyalty, integrity... Fidelity to um, something that's larger than myself, that makes it the healthy orange. And so you, there, there are values that de- our, our values line of development keeps, if, if we keep it alive, if we let it, if we uh, nourish it, it grows as we grow through worldviews. And, the more, and gr- increasingly, the more we are aware of ourselves, the more we can organize our lives according to our values, which is right. why I, I'm fond of saying that the most powerful force on earth is focus, intent, and human focus, intent, and action in service of principle driven by resolve and commitment. And those principles evolve as we evolve. And we're Say hard that again, for- Keith, because that's, I, you know, when you said that the other day, I actually wrote it down. It's worth, um, you know, giving us another chance on that, remembering that. The human race is accelerating evolution. On every level, social evolution, genetic evolution, I mean, physical evolution has accelerated with the human race also. The way that that happens is through human focus, intent, and action in service of principle and driven by resolve and commitment. That force is what creates everything. And that's the force that actually methodically creates, is basically the engine of practice and creates these new grooves that you're talking about that help literally rewire our brains. Yes. We can use our mind. What Rick Hansen says, you you use your mind to rewire your brain, which then supports the development of your mind. Yeah. There's a loop that... and, And, you know, one of my beliefs is that ego is actually a speed governor on neural integration. You know, brains are complex systems. The most complex system that we've discovered in the universe is the human brain that are naturally wired for um, integrating to unity. How come we're not all integrating to unity with everything instantaneously at this moment? Um, I think the ego... Well, exactly, ser- precisely. I think the ego has a, series of, uh, is, has a series of governors because if the subjective sense of integrating to unity is a loss of, of egoic self, and I right. think that that, that resistance 
to integration is basically the ego holding on to its separate identity. It has to die piece by piece. That's no fun. It, it's, it's no fun until it starts happening, and then you discover it's a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things that happens when one realizes some of the stuff we're realizing is, yes. hey, this dismantlement is, of the ego is actually a fun project, and we can do it skillfully. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't have to be so bad, and it's, uh, you know, they don't call it liberation for nothing. No, they don't. Every time we, <laughs> every time we take down another one of these I-beams, these steel I-beams of ego, or soften it and loosen it up, it lets the Aryan, you know, the updraft of, of emergence itself can get at us. And then that quality that we're programmed for, greater love, greater intimacy, yeah. Yeah. Um, that keeps, my, my own, I really loved the attachment research that was done in the 50s, that's still being done, starting in the 50s with John Bowlby to the, today. And the neuroscientists love the attachment research too. They really wanted to see how people, how children develop different attachment styles. And so they really studied hard how mother and, and child infants and cultural units created different attachment styles in children that, that basically got divided up into secure attachment styles and insecure attachment styles. And we've done a lot of research about what are the, the neural mechanisms of secure attachment and neural mechanisms of insecure attachment. And, you know, that's led to a lot of information about the neurobiology of certain kinds of psychological disorders like depression and anxiety and borderline personality disorder and so on. But the thing that, that is really uh, uh, exciting, one of the many things that's exciting about it is that the thing that creates problems almost always is disconnection. And the yeah. thing that creates um, growth is almost always a certain kind of intimacy. Yeah. Intimacy with self, in that there's a sense of secure connection with all different parts of yourself. Intimacy with spirit, a sense of secure connection with spirit. And intimacy with other people and objects, a secure connection yeah. with those people. What I've observed is that when those connections are all in place, the brain and the, and the, and the body and the body, mind, and spirit naturally integrates towards greater complexity, which is deeper compassion, more, yes. more consciousness. And, it's all, and most of it happens in a relationship. You know, we're finding more and more of this. We're in relationship with each other all the time. Yeah. And the more that we experience that, generally the better we do. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, earlier uh, about uh, going out to dinner at a restaurant where there was, you know, it was a fine restaurant and, you know, waiting list and all of that stuff uh, yeah. and just impeccable and expensive. And it didn't seem like anybody was having any fun. It was so and amazing, Jeff. <laughs> you know, Becky and I used to go to this place 20 years ago right before we got married. We called it Romantic Fridays. We'd take a hike and then go have lunch at this place. And they remodeled, so we decided to go back last night. And so we went, and nobody was having any fun. First yeah. of all, there was a, a real caste system between the many, many, many attendants. Whose, what blew Becky's mind is that the uh, placemats on our table matched the material in the clothes of the, um, I mean, obviously a, lot, a whole lot of designers have been enlisted yeah. in this remodel. Yeah. But everybody was tense. Nobody was having a good time. The guests were yeah. having a good time. The yeah. people at the table next to us were uptight. The food was terrible as yeah. far as I was concerned, you know. And, you know, we, I was sitting there with Becky going, you know, we're, we're in an environment that, that has no spirit in it. And the reason yeah. it has no spirit in it is that somehow the, the culture at this moment in this place – 
involves many, 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 many disconnections and objectifications, and very yeah. little. The best intimacy I had in the whole night was talking to the guy who poured my water about the surf that morning. He'd yeah. gone surfing, <laughs> and we had a conversation about surf, and that was the most authentic conversation I had all evening. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to look at it as connection and disconnection because it's, it's really, you know, th there's a certain flavor of that alienation of modernity. There's no mm -hmm. doubt about it. Mm -hmm. In fact, David Brooks had a column. I wrote a blog post about it this week uh, about uh, content analysis of 50 million books or something done by Google mm -hmm. over the, you know, basically last several hundred years. I mean, all of the books. And, um, and it showed that he was looking, David Brooks was looking at research uh, on the last 50 years and how the use of communal words such as honor, dignity, these quaint words that we associate with uh, traditionalism and yeah. blue and you know, amber structures have changed to the words of modernity, which are basically words about exchange and creativity and discipline. And there's it basically went from communal words to agentic words or the individual uh -huh. words. And he sees that as a, a loss of, you know, moral moorings. And, yeah. the, you know, the, the language of morality has been gone and we have a certain loss to that. And I think there's truth to that. But I also think part of it is, is that once we, and this is what I wrote about, is that once we integrate those values of honesty and dignity and that, those sorts of things, then we don't actually have to talk about them as much. Right. We become unconsciously competent. It's maybe one of the things we're talking about with the upper right. It's, it's part of what has happened for humanity is that we have stable structures of morality in the upper right, so we don't actually have to talk about them, you know, not as much. And also we have and then so we can talk about the next level, which is about, okay, we get that we have to be good people with each other, and we do in modernity. It's not like people become uncivilized. And we also have stable structures of care for each other in the lower left, you know, that are yes, accepted. exactly. Thank it's, you. It's like the yeah. modern, the, the, there, there now is a modern consensus around the world that great powers don't go to war with each other. Modern yes. consensus. Yes. Again, and, you know, the, the thing about David Brooks, he's That's my favorite. That's new on the face of the earth, that the great thing, powers haven't gone to war. Yeah. The, the thing about David Brooks, who's my favorite conservative, is yeah. that he's bringing rationality to bear on, and, you know, he's a rational voice in the conservative movement. But, you yeah. know, he's existentially bleak. Because yes, he's, he is. He's, he's kind of at that place where, you know, uh, of the modern consciousness where you're, you're kind of reaching and having a sense for, yeah, it would be really nice if we all cared for each other, their universal rights, but there's these human drives and these fundamentalist um, forces that kind of block that, that leaves yeah. you in somewhat of an existentially brief place. Yeah. He really hasn't embraced, as far as I can tell, the evolution of consciousness, which is much more hopeful. Well, and I it, see a little what? twinkle of that in him sometimes. <laughs> and I think I heard that he was a meditator and that that's this was kind right. of new for him. And if that's the case, then I'm just waiting for, you know, the egg to crack a little bit. Well, he wrote a book talking about the nature of decision-making, where he gathered together the research and showed that in general, you know, remember, this is a statistical analysis, that people made uh, decisions, uh, Nudge is a good, uh, is a good uh, technical book about this, people made decisions for emotional reasons way more than rational reasons. And the new science of neuroeconomics is really big on that. And so this is him saying, tend to be rational, but we're not really rational. 
Now, yeah. again, you know, as he begins to, if he continues his meditation practice and he begins to have a, a, a sense of the evolution of intimacy and the evolution of consciousness, he's going to get more hopeful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, a, it's like what meditation does for any of us. It just helps us to aerate our minds and thinking and yeah. not have them be so solid and, and airtight. Now, this and is, that's always a good thing. Now, this is where psychotherapy comes in. And yeah. it's, it's, it's funny to me that, that most, mostly when people come up with integrative philosophies, at some point or another, even if they're a psychotherapist, they tend to be critical of psychotherapy. I'm, I'm just fascinated. Mm-hmm. But like, for instance, I'm reading Rob McNamara's book, um, The Elegant Self, and I'm just totally enjoying it. Just yeah, having a great it's time. Great book. And you know, he's taking, By the way, folks, again, Rob McNamara, The Elegant Self, well worth checking out. Well worth checking out. Great book. The, 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 the best exposition I have found about socialized mind, self-authoring mind, self-transforming mind. Yeah, um, really too. a cognitive bridge into non-duality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, good job, Rob. And he couldn't help himself. Two or three times he said, and you know, you read this chapter, it'll save you thousands of dollars in psychotherapy. You know, I, <laughs> he couldn't help himself. He had to, you know, why is that? People, why is there that hostility? People have that hostility because everybody resists the fact that since brains are wired for threat, we walk through the world having more primitive memes enacted, more primitive impulses and defensive states enacted all the time, and we have to deal with them and regulate them and observe them. Yeah. And this irritates people. It, well, it irritates, irritates me. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, keep going. It's... It irritates people because you, you, you hit a level where you feel like you're some kind of, uh, if not enlightened a certain amount of the time, at least somebody that has a large view and is compassionate a certain amount of the time, and you don't want to have to deal with the fact that you turn into a dick once in a while, or you get selfish once right. in a while, or you get defensive and, or competitive even. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, 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 hard, the hardest thing that I used to have reading a book like Rob's is about you know, if it was a great book as it is, I'd start getting competitive by the 20th or the 30th page and start going, well, yeah, yeah, you know, it is what I do. <laughs> and, and now I, I feel that happening, and instead of getting competitive, I go, no, no, this is great. And, oh, you know, you add a little bit of this, and it makes it even more yummy. And you add a little bit of this, and it makes it even more yummy. I personally yeah. think that that's, that's one of the things that Integral really offers to a lot of us. And probably, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and probably what happened with Ken, you know, he probably found himself, he, in fact, he did, he describes it, he found himself doing that with spirituality and then found yeah. a way to expand rather than contract into competition. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And to find a way where, I mean, at this point, I read every book as a certain transmission of this author in this moment in time of an infinite way of expressing the capital T truth. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? I'll just drink of this well, and I know if I do that with a good heart and an open mind, then God's going to take care of the rest. It's all going to find its place uh-huh. in this bigger structure that's really more God's than mine on a good day. I think so. You know, my other favorite book this last couple of weeks has been Get the Guy by Matthew Hussey, who's a millennial who coaches women how to get guys. And that's my other <laughs> favorite book. Oh, well, tell, give us the, the headline in first paragraph. That sounds because, fabulous. 
because what this guy did, Matthew Hussey, you know, he was miserable with women, so he learned how to um, date women. You know, he learned how to meet beautiful women and date them and, and establish mm-hmm. the first couple of stages of the relationship. And then, uh, you know, uh, created a profession where he taught lots and lots of guys how to do that. And then his women friends kept saying, where are the good guys? So then he started teaching women how to get guys. And the way he did it is he used his trustable masculine to get women to activate their masculine to direct themselves to develop their feminine and by getting their by activating their masculine to develop their feminine he got them to surrender to being essentially more feminine people in every way he got them to be feel more beautiful feel more sense of autocracy and autonomy feel more sense of sexiness feel more sense of autonomy of, of independence yes. and of social, being social feel themselves someone who is interested in other people and offers compliments to other people. Basically, by doing that, he created a framework where they could go out and meet guys. Okay? Wow. I really, I really, really, really like that. Wow. I love it. I, I just love it in concept. And, yeah. and I love that, you know, just to sort of, it's, it's what's so great about this integral view and this integral stage of consciousness. And that uh, is that either or just doesn't, it's not even interesting which one's true. It's like, I want both. I want both. I want all, I want all of it. I trust which, myself. Which is intimacy. You know, wanting yeah. both is wanting intimacy. And remember, yes, we're evolutionary wired for competition and dominance and, and protection yeah. and defense. We're also evolutionarily wired for mutuality, for love, for white embrace, for yeah. unity. Yeah. Um, and since we're human beings, it turns everything into art. You can see this throughout human history. All the drives have been turned into art, which is one of the reasons that technological advances have been generally most reflected in instruments of war, you know, dominance, defense, and so on, yeah, yeah, and, music, yeah. and musical instruments, hmm. instruments of beauty and harmony. Yeah. That's where our technological advances have come overwhelmingly over the last couple of thousand years. Yeah, and there we're, we're bringing in the lower right. And it all, you know, this is the the great insight of integral is that evolution is happening in all four quadrants. Yeah. The individual, the interior, the exterior, and the collective. And it's just, you know, inspiring. And we, it's one of those insights that I feel like I can just sort of unfurl my cosmic sails Mm. and just sort of pick up the, you know, pick up the the wind, the updraft of it. (sighs) You know. And it's enacted through states. You know, you just did that. You know, as you yeah. did, as you unfurled, you entered a state, and I entered a state with you because we're connected yes. in, in, yes. in our lower left. And that's basically, that's how it's all enacted. To, yes. to a certain extent, what types are, are just the states that we're most likely to enact in a given circumstance. Yes. And everybody's yes. type is just that wide constellation yes. of states that they're most likely to enact. Yes. And, and also we, just sort of the, the structure and particulars and textures of their sales. There's morphogenic fields, genetic heritage, all that stuff. Yeah. But then once we got it, the more that we grow, the more we want to turn it into art and intimacy. Yeah, exactly. You know, and this is what the integral world space, as we develop, is. we're getting more and more of this. We're seeing it all, all the time. The amazing, beautiful ways that people are connecting. 
and the art forms. And, you know, in Boulder, I know in Santa Barbara, I think we're at the leading edge of a lot of this. It's beautiful. And it's, that's also developmental. I mean, there's a, right now there's the Creek Path Festival going on down here in Boulder, and it's just ah. jammed with people and all this tchotchkes and these <laughs> carnival rides and all this terrible food, and yet it's, it's just it's a wonderful collective arising for, you know, sort of modern and traditional and, and you know, my, my liberal friends sort of turn up their nose at it, and I do too, sort of. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's funny to see the evolution of these sort of, uh, of the lower quadrants, especially the lower left, of how we relate to each other. Well, in Santa Barbara, they're having Aymadinari, which is, <laughs> in, in front of the mission, there are, are five-foot-by-five-foot spaces of concrete that have been blocked out, maybe 50 of them. And artists from all over California and Santa Barbara are, are now making chalk paintings, exquisite chalk paintings of, oh. any, of any number of themes. And around uh-huh. it is all the, the booths and the, and the barbecue and all that other stuff. And every year this happens. And then the paintings stay, the chalk paintings stay for a week or two or whatever, and then a rain comes or a heavy mist and they're gone. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is, you know, it's, you know, well, it's basically it's an amber tradition that has endured through Santa Barbara that has, and everybody enjoys it on whatever level they enjoy it. And the paintings, you know, are, they, they run the gamut from modern art to heavily religious themes. Oh, wow, that erotic. sounds fabulous. It is. It's very go, cool. Yeah, go enjoy that. I, I definitely. I always wait. I always wait until the afternoon of the third day. Everybody's gone. I'm gonna run from painting to painting and painting, and just go. Wow. Uh huh. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah. And so the beat goes on. Beat goes on. And and how wonderful to if I could just sum up here, sure. what I've gotten from our last conversations, is this wiring and this sort of um, imperative in the brain, in the upper right, to connect us and to be the sort of source of love and connection and goodness, truth, and beauty. And mm-hmm. that to actually contemplate that my meat space, that my wiring of my brain wants that, I feel like that's a powerful insight as, mm. as part of this religion, as, as you say. And it's one that I didn't get before, strangely, not, at least not at this depth. So I just want to say thank you, Brother Keith. Aww, you, are in, yeah. you are indeed the doctor of love. <laughs> uh, well, this has been another wonderful conversation <laughs> with you. Always it's a, such a pleasure, Keith. Well, and I want to make a point about this. You know, there is a fractal boundary um, between okay. what's known and what's unknown. And what, what I'm discovering more and more and more is that the way that I get to that boundary is through mutuality. You know, you yeah. and I discover stuff when we talk that I don't discover by myself because yeah. you and I together create something larger than us when we go to that fractal boundary and out of that cool stuff comes. And, I, you know, it's an indescribable experience. You've got to be on the inside of it, really. I, I think more and more and more that particular kind of mutuality in every form now that's going to become more and more and more what all of us say, yes, I want to have this all the time. I yes. want to have this every day. God bless you, man. That so is so true. It just, I just, you know, I'm feeling it uh, deep right now. So hmm. God bless us all. Thank you so much, Brother Keith. 
you, Jeff. And uh, goodbye, everybody. Thanks much. Comment if you wish. Uh, we always love hearing from you. Yes. And more to come. Uh, we're going to do this regularly, and we'll see you in a month, uh, Dr. Keith and me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.